All right, without further ado, I am really excited that we have Dr. Sarah Emanuel back with us. I'm actually hoping maybe we can twist her arm to come back a little bit in the future as well, because she wrote a book that I piled some things on, sorry for the noise, that I realized I had that we'll be doing probably a sermon series on later this year called Roasting Rome, Humor, Resistance, and Jewish Cultural Persistence in the Book of Revelation. I think it's going to be absolutely outstanding. I told her I'd been saving this because I know we've got kind of a big um, election year coming up, and I think it's going to be important for us to understand different ways that we can resist empire and see humor as part of that. So if you weren't here last time or didn't get to hear Sarah one, I encourage you to listen to the podcast from two weeks ago. Um, and you should know that Sarah is the Assistant Professor of Theological Studies at Loyola Marymount University. She is an expert in, well, she's a Jewish woman who is an expert in the New Testament. So this is really outstanding, helping us understand the cultural context and religious context. She's also the co-chair for the Co-Laboratory at Feminist Studies and Religion, where she co-hosts the podcast Feminist Talk Religion, um, and also is the content area editor of Biblical Studies at the Ancient Jew Review. And as a bonus, four dogs and two cats, which we can see at least one of the dogs behind you who is really cute. All right, Sarah, glad to have you. It's all you now. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, it's good to be back. Um, yeah, really happy to be here. So uh, this is part two of a two part, you know, talk, uh, speedy talk, I should say, on um you know, the relationship between Jewishness and the New Testament. So um, we're, you know, we're jumping in into part two. So, you know, if, if something doesn't quite add up, I, I certainly, as Emily said, encourage you to listen to part one, but I'm also more than happy to answer, um, you know, as many questions as I can, if something does seem um, confusing or, or very new. Um, so I guess just as a very, very brief um review of what was covered last uh last time uh you know we we talked about okay so the new testament um the canonized new testament contains 27 books um each book in some way shape or form is either trying to make sense of who jesus uh was and how he um is the the moshiach or the christos uh or um, trying to showcase how best to follow Jesus as the Messiah, a.k.a. the Christos. Um, and uh, those 27 books are written from roughly 50 of the Common Era to the early, mid, second century of the Common Era, which is difficult uh, given the primary person these texts are thinking about. Uh, Jesus uh, was not living uh, from 50 of the Common Era to the early uh, second century of the Common Era. Uh, rather, he was born from our calendar's perspective, what we would date to about 4 BCE, and died uh, by crucifixion uh, in about 30 of the Common Era. So he died a couple um, you know, a few, a, a solid, you know, a uh, couple decades before anything was starting um, to be written about him. And it's so great that Caroline brought up Paul because Paul is going to be a major uh, focus for, for today. The first, you know, pieces of literature that are written are Paul's letters. And uh, Paul is unfortunately giving us very, very little information about this person, Jesus. He is far more focused on ushering uh, new members into the Jesus movement, into the movement that believes that Jesus is the Christ. Um, so uh, as
as we talked about last time, uh, Jesus was born into a world of Jewish difference and debate. So Jewishness 4 BCE to 30 CE when Jesus is living is marked by um, you know, Jews arguing with each other about how best to live in relation to their God, the God of Israel, their temple in Jerusalem, where their God dwells, and, um, uh, you know, their texts and law codes that can be sort of, you know, put under the umbrella of Torah, but Torah can mean sacred texts, uh, and it can also mean um, law, or another word for that would be halakha, the various ways in which Jews um, relate ethnically to their, um, you know, th theology. So this would be practicing circumcision for um, for males, um, you know, keeping what we now call kosher, uh, abstaining from certain um, dietary practices, and also observing the Sabbath, taking the day off on Saturday um, to to honor their tradition and their God. Uh, all of these things were um, quite odd to the larger Greco-Roman world. Um, however, um, you know, when the Romans came in, um, they they took they took over the area where Jesus, uh, you know, was dwelling, ancient Israel, and about sixty three BCE, when the Romans came in, um, they, unlike their um, you know, Greek predecessors uh, were were okay with Jews sort of being around and doing their thing because they had antiquity on their side. Romans greatly valued anything that had a, a great history. Um, Romans let Jews do their thing so long as they didn't overstep, um, you know, Roman mores, Roman ways of being. So they could they could do their stuff, but you know, it was a really thin line. It was very easy to to cross a border and to upset the larger Roman world. Um, if this were a class on the historical Jesus, we would talk a lot about what Jesus may have done to cross that line to be crucified under Roman hands. But um, this is more about, you know, the, the broader question of Jewishness in relation to the New Testament and the historical Jesus didn't write anything in the New Testament. Our major writer is Paul. And Paul actually gives us great insight into um, a question that I started us off with last week, which is how did this movement start with a Jewish man and turn into something that is not Jewish? Um, and a lot of it comes down to this person, Paul. So again, Jesus, born into a Jewish world, argued with other Jews about how best to be Jewish, argued with other Jews about how best to be in relation to God, temple, and Torah, um, and was also living in a time period in which many Jews were having a sort of messianic understanding of their tradition. Um, believing or hoping for a, Mos a Moshiach or a king or a Christos to come and overthrow the powers that be to, um, to bring about a new world order in which the God of Israel would be seen as God by everyone. So everyone would finally see that the Jews had it right. The Messianic expectation is remarkably um, ethnocentric. And those who believed that Jesus was the one to overthrow the powers that be and usher in this new world order became Jesus followers. So all of this is entirely Jewish. To believe that Jesus is the Messiah is to automatically take on a Jewish perspective of the world. And the the you know early movement was entirely Jewish. It is possible that some non-Jews or Gentiles were in conversation with this movement. Uh, we do have evidence of non-Jews um, taking interest in Jewish theology and not fully converting. If one were to fully convert to 
Jewishness at this time period, one would need to take on those ethnic codes. We do have evidence of what's called God-fearers or Gentile, um, you know, um, engagers of Jewish theology who maintained their Gentileness in entering Jewish conversation. So it is possible that there were some of those in the earliest movement of Christ followers, but we really don't know much. We know very little about the historical Jesus and um, his earliest earliest um, uh, students. Uh, so, so this Jewish man has this small following of Jews and maybe some God-fearers who think he is Messiah, and he dies in, in 30. Um, this is a huge deal for those who think that Jesus is going to uh, fulfill that messianic expectation. Because if Jesus dies, and not just he dies, but he dies by crucifixion, which is a Roman punishment. If Jesus dies by Rome, it signals to those familiar with the messianic expectation that this may not be the guy whatsoever. The Messiah is supposed to overthrow the powers that be, and the powers that be overthrew him. Paul is one such Jew who is entirely not persuaded by this Christ-following movement. He thinks it makes absolutely no sense. He, um, you know, he he self-identifies as a Pharisee, as a particular, um, as as a as someone. Um, a Pharisee is, is one way of being Jewish in this world of ancient Jewish difference and debate. And Pharisees were, were well-versed in uh, messianic hopes and messianic expectations. And all of a sudden, there's this guy who people are saying is um, going to bring about the new world order where the God of Israel will be the God of all people and the powers that be will be overthrown. And that doesn't, it, that it can't be Jesus for someone like Paul. Um, and he makes that very known. He's completely against the Christ following movement until um, he, you know, he shares that he has this vision of Jesus as a resurrected being. And that completely changes his mind from being a Jewish non-Christ confessor to being a Jewish Christ confessor. So Paul never renounces his Jewishness, but he turns from not believing that Jesus could be the Messiah to believing that Jesus could be the Messiah. And his belief in Jesus's resurrection is huge for this because in ancient Jewish messianic conversations, the idea was that at the onset or like just before into the onset into the, into the ushering in of the messianic age, uh, there would be a communal resurrection of the righteous. So those who lived a righteous life would be resurrected communally all together and ushered into, um, into this new world order. And so for Paul to see Jesus resurrect, that signaled to Paul, one, Paul can overthrow the powers that be. He has more, he's, he's back. He can finish the job and overthrow Rome, but he already proved that he can overcome an even greater force, which is death itself. And third, Jesus's resurrection signaled to someone like Paul that the communal resurrection must be imminent, right? There, this idea of a one-to-one, -one, one person dies and one person resurrects, that's not known in ancient Jewish circles. It was supposed to be communal. So to see one signal to someone like Paul, the rest must be, must be almost here. So Paul, uh, in believing that Jesus is indeed this Jewish Messiah he has been waiting for, thinks that the, the messianic age is about to happen at any moment. And he finds it his um, God and Jesus given duty to rather than spread this message to fellow Jews, he thinks, you know, Jews are already doing this. Those who do think Jesus is the Christ 
are Jews. This is a Jewish conversation. He thinks it's his duty to spread the message to non-Jews, to bring Gentiles into the conversation. And he travels around the ancient Mediterranean, setting up Christ-following assemblies um, to sort of, you know, get things ready for Jesus's, um, you know, final move of overthrowing the powers that be and ushering in this new world order. Um, just as we know very little about the historical Jesus, because Jesus didn't write anything himself in the New Testament, and he died decades prior to the, these writings, we at the end of the day actually also know quite little about Paul, um, because most of the letters that Paul is writing uh, are not, you know, just just straight, you know, um, um, treaties about Paul's theology. Instead, it seems like he is receiving letters from the communities he set up with, that are having specific questions for him, and then he is writing back. So we have to really read between the lines. The one text that we have that doesn't do that, that does seem to be some sort of like, hi, this is me, this is who I am, you may have heard of me, these are my thoughts, um, is the letter that Caroline quoted, which is his letter to the Romans. So scholars give Paul's letter to the Romans a lot of weight. Um, it sort of seems to be um, the only text we have that gives some sort of overarching understanding of, of Paul's theology, where um, he's not as much, um, you know, responding to, to specifics of, of a community that is reaching out to him. And in Romans, and in reading between the lines of other texts, it is remarkably clear that Paul wants um, the Gentiles he's reaching out to, to stay Gentile in their um, belief in Jesus as the Christ. And this is quite interesting. Um, because for some, the logic is, well, if I'm going to join, if I'm Gentile and I'm going to join the Jesus movement, surely I must convert and become Jewish to do this Jewish thing. And so we have evidence that Paul is encountering these Gentiles wanting to fully convert and wanting to keep the dietary codes, wanting to practice the Sabbath and wanting to, uh, practice circumcision. And Paul is making it very clear that he does not want them to do that. We don't have a full answer as to why Paul um, wants Gentiles to stay Gentile, but there are a couple hypotheses that have been posed. Um, and one that I think is quite intriguing, this is posed by um, scholar uh, uh, Pamela Eisenbaum. And Pamela Eisenbaum um, makes the case that all of this has to do with Paul's own Jewish messianism which is the belief that the Messiah will usher in a new world order in which all people believe that the God of Israel is God. And so for someone believing that, you can't just have Jews. You need to have non-Jews, right? The Messianic hope is that all people, both Jews and non-Jews, will finally see the God of Israel as God. So from her perspective, Paul is quite anxious to help Jesus sort of set things up. If Jesus at any moment is going to overthrow Rome and bring about the Messianic age, Paul is trying to get things ready to have both Jew and non-Jew be thinking about the God of Israel. And for non-Jews, just as Abraham had, had faith in God, non-Jews can have faith in Jesus to have access um, to this, um, this new world order. What this has to do with um, broader Jewish Christian relations is um, everything, uh, because as 
um, more and more Gentiles are, jo are joining the movement and are um, joining the movement in a Pauline sensibility, which is to not become Jewish, you start to have even more difference and debate. So it's not just Jews arguing with other Jews about how best to be Jewish. It's now also Jesus followers arguing with other Jesus followers about how best to be a Jesus follower. And some are saying the best way is to be Jewish. Some are saying the best way is to be Gentile. Some are saying the best way is to think that, you know, Jesus is fully human. Some are saying, you know, fully divine, both human and divine. There's all sorts of differences and debates happening within the early Jesus uh, movement throughout the earliest centuries of the common era. These debates continue for decades and for centuries. The New Testament is not canonized until the late fourth century of the common era, nor is there any kind of creed that seems to gain traction until the fourth century of the common era, nor is um, this Christ-following movement um, supported by larger power structures until the fourth century of the common era. What happens in the fourth century is um, Rome takes on a particular way of being a Christ confessor. And the version that they take on is to be a Gentile follower of Jesus as the Christ. The winning movement is not a Jewish one. The winning movement is not a Jewish and Gentile one, which I think is what Paul perhaps would have wanted most. Um, uh, the winning movement is one that is, you know, saying the best way to be a Christ confessor is to be Gentile and to separate itself from Jewish ethnic codes. Um, this is really tricky to to um, to want a Christ following movement that is not ethnically Jewish is a hard sell. It's a hard sell because logically speaking, this is an entirely Jewish conversation and started out as a Jewish ethnic enterprise. Um, and to have Jewish ethnicity completely wiped from the conversation, uh, again, it's, a, it's something really hard to sell. And sometimes when we are trying to push forward an agenda um, that is difficult to validate. The easiest thing to do is to put down your opponents as opposed to prove your own stance. So what happens is in the development of this version of Christ followingness that becomes Christianity with a capital C, you have a lot of anti-Jewish propaganda, a lot of anti-Jewish sentiment, and a lot of anti-Jewish readings of earlier texts. So the earlier texts in the New Testament from 50 to early second century, certainly post-Pauline letters such as the Gospels, it's really hard to know what kind of author is writing those texts. Was it a Jewish confessor of Jesus as the Christ? Was it a Gentile confessor of Jesus as the Christ? But even if it was a Gentile Christ confessor, what do they think about their fellow Jews in this movement? It's really hard to know. But by the time we get to the fourth century in this winning movement, we know that there is this thread of trying to distance itself from its Jewish origins. And you can never fully distance itself from its Jewishness because the theology is bound in Jewishness. It's following the God of Israel. You can't fully separate. But in order to, again, prove this very distinct way of doing it, that is not at all taking on Jewish ethnic codes or even wanting to be in conversation with um, Jews that are following Jesus as the Christ, uh, you have to kind of um, 
tear down the the Jewish ethnic aspects and even the Jewish theological aspects that don't serve you. So we kind of get um, an unfortunate um, bullying in um, the early um, days of Christianity with a capital C, and it, it's not necessarily distinct. Again, um, uh, Jesus too was using harsh rhetoric um, to to um, you know dismantle Jews with whom he disagreed. Uh, but because this winning movement comes to get so much power and comes to fully separate itself from um, Jewish ethnicity and um, you know other Jews, uh, we get a remarkably disheartening um, uh, history of Christian anti-Judaism and anti-Judaism that I would argue is fully counter to Jesus's own perspectives and fully counter to Paul's own perspectives and to many of the writers of the New Testament. But again, a lot of it comes down to trying to prove the worth of this winning movement. It's a difficult sell to have a movement that is completely, um, you know, that is trying to be distinct from, from other Jews when the movement itself is profoundly attached to Jewishness and can never fully be separated from Jewishness. So um, that's the time that I have. Um, that's sort of the, the very brief overarching view of how did we get from a Jewish movement to a non-Jewish movement? It comes down to trying to prove the validity of, of the winning team. Uh, but there were lots of teams and lots of teams trying to outdo other teams via bullying or harsh rhetoric. It just so happens that the one that won is um, one trying to sell a non-Jewish way of doing it. Yeah, I want to say thank you. And just thank you, because that's like a vulnerable thing to get up and have to say in front of a Christian uh, space. And I want to say thank you. It was like such a respectful way of being able to, you know, honor some of our readings of Jesus and Paul as not being like that. But also, we've got to own like just how deep the anti-Judaism and the anti-Semitism is and that it took root so quickly mm -hmm. um, and that it's it is so entwined and embedded that we now have 1500 to 2000 years of undoing and like we're seeing it in our own like government right now i don't know if you saw but like even just something that stuck out to me was you know kanye who's just kind of a mess going off with all this anti-semitic stuff on twitter that got him kicked off and then immediately the house gop judiciary committee their official twitter is like like a go kanye and Trump. And I was like, Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. um, and that's yeah, vomit, right? L. I <laughs> see that in the and um, all of this is like still ongoing. And there's so much work to do. Um, can I can I just add, may I ask you a couple of questions? Just that? Hey, I, yeah, but, yeah. And thank you for Yeah, thank everything you said. Yeah, it's a very yeah. difficult time and history. Yeah. In some ways, I think there's parts of Christianity that are really ripe for trying to make some of these reparations and come back, like kind of, um, yeah, make some of these reparations. Um, mm -hmm. But I know there's parts that are absolutely not ripe for that. So one of my one of my questions was, um, yeah, like what? And maybe, maybe this isn't like your like your field, but like I'd always heard like I know that the Gospels were written down much later. Mm -hmm. um, 
just like were the, were there multiple oral histories like oh, yeah. these, these were coming down from the oral traditions right these yeah yeah yes great question so when we say you know these gospels the four that got canonized but there were lots of others that mm -hmm. did not get canonized right um yeah when we say that they were written you know decades after jesus died that that's true based on that what we know at this particular moment i mean who knows what we'll find archaeologically speaking in the future that can change all of this but that's not to say that that oral narratives about jesus's life weren't happening from you know starting at the time in which he's living so there are stories about jesus circulating much earlier and people's memory for narrative is far better in yes. antiquity than it is today um the example i always use with my students is like all of us grew up knowing phone numbers like it's no problem and right. now it sounds very difficult to, to remember a bunch of phone numbers so you know like it just imagine in antiquity they don't have books in the way that we do there's no printing yeah. press so their memories are quite remarkable for story and for yeah for facts yeah that's why I, when i i was a history undergrad and i took oral history a class when i was in ireland actually where it's much much more prominent even now and they talked about just the accuracy of it but also how it like can kind of filter like which stories were more accepted by the communities that were passing them down and which ones yes. got filtered out and it's kind of a fascinating area of study and then they can also put interpretation and context as they're mm -hmm. they're going um yeah i thought it was also kind of fascinating because i think you read paul the way that we've sometimes done and are trying to learn more because i used to hate paul like i used to just absolutely despise him and now i think i'm i've, I've become much more of a paul fan um, but I always found him confusing because sometimes he would say, yeah, Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. And then he, I mean, Timothy wasn't a Gentile, he had a Jewish mother, but he like, circumcised Timothy himself. Um, and so he did seem to be kind of trying to balance mm -hmm. these two things in a way that didn't ultimately work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, Eisenbaum's, like, you, you also can't have only Gentiles for the message right. of expectation. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Paul, I... I I don't I'm not sure how I feel about Paul, but um, I'm still working my way through. He's a he's a tough one. But yeah, he's so confusing and confusing. And I mean, he's he's anxious, I think yeah. he's so anxious about this, this second coming in, in our modern terminology. And, yeah. um, you know, he's also just like responding to questions that I think he is irritated, you know, by. Mm. So I don't think we're getting his best mood. <laughs> yeah, uh, half the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, do you think that that, that expectation that this resurrection is like imminent mm -hmm. was highly affecting just like his fervor and- Yes, yeah. yes, yeah, 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 100%. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel like I could I could talk with you and ask a million questions. And so may, maybe at some point we can, um, you and I can maybe uh, circle back around if you're you're willing for yeah, a little more off topic or come back and and talk with us. But I don't want to keep you too too long here. Um, if, there, if were there any other questions, just in the um, questions for the pastors. It's just sorry, just checking the chat really quick to make yeah. sure I didn't miss anything that was like a really uh, simple question that could be. <laughs> Oh, Susan King, it's always interesting me how Paul and James argued constantly about how Jewish they needed to be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think this will be really helpful um, as we tease things out. And I feel a little bit bad that we asked you to do like a Jewishness of the New Testament in like two very short talks. I know that that's <laughs> a lot of pressure. 
Um, but I do appreciate the scaffolding that you've shared with us. And again, just the vulnerability, because I, I know that there's been just so much um, damage that's been done from people of my tradition. And mm -hmm. so appreciate you being yeah. here.